welcome to episode 256 of the Stag Roar. Earlier in the year, um, I saw a post that was about connecting with more science-minded people, getting them on the podcast. Some of the early days of the Stag Roar podcast were with quite a few intellectuals, the likes of Grant Schofield, Cliff Harvey, we're hopefully going to have him back on shortly, um, Karen Zinn, Dr. Sean Baker, Megan Ramos, that's one of the most listened to of all time podcasts, Megan Ramos. Um, who else did we have in there? Ivor Cummins, people like that, and, and, and talking about metabolism and health. And so, yeah, earlier in the year I, I was made a sort of conscious effort to get back to some of those episodes um, while still having the episodes that are a lot of fun, and um, certainly plenty of those still to come. Um, of course, we've got the Seeker Show coming up shortly, so there'll be a bit of content from there created as well. But this episode, I'm joined by Isan Vagefi. Uh, Isan was actually one of my lecturers back at university. And through a company called Toku Eyes, Isan and others have created an AI program that is going to revolutionize the way healthcare has done. It's going to be more about prevention, extending the um, time to diagnosis, um, being able to create good prognoses for health, and in particular through retinal images, first off with diabetic photo screening, and uh, secondly with uh, cardiovascular disease. Of course, looking inside the eyeball, an extension of the brain, you're able to see parts of the brain and the blood supply without the need for cutting it open or, or um, doing a, a sample. So, yeah, that's what we talk about here. It's pretty intense. I'm sorry if my some of my uh, language fell into the jargon. Oh, I do apologize for that. <laughs> got quite excited by this podcast. I got off the mic and was hugely pumped. Either that or was the Alipa that I uh, drank beforehand. Um I don't know if you were watching the rugby on Thursday night, but um, Drink Arlipa came across on, on the old digital billboard, so that was pretty exciting. So if, you, if you're keen on sampling that, make sure you grab the the uh, referral code STAGRAW to chuck that in, check out, not a referral code, sorry, discount code. No, there's no referring going on there, just, just giving you a discount code. And um, maybe uh, some of the boys after the HIAs, would have needed an Arepa to refuel the brain. Um, and I think old Sam Kane will be going for some of the sponsors' product as well. I, I just went into the, the Kane's Deer Velvet website here, um, Um And here it is, professional rugby player for New Zealand, Sam Kane, all black captain nonetheless. As an international rugby player, I've been very lucky to have taken Kane's Deer Velvet since I was 14 years old. It's an important part of my nutrition regime. Its wide range of benefits supports my rugby career and lifestyle perfectly. It allows me to recover quicker post-training in games and has been hugely beneficial in helping me bounce back from injury. I wouldn't be without it. Sam Kane. Yep, so uh, I'd say he'll be taking a double dose of that, trying to give himself the nutrients to, to refuel and, and resupport the brain. Um Kathy sent me through a few things about uh, the Omega 3 content, and I thought, shit, that's probably going to be quite good for traumatic brain injury. Um, and yeah, you'll probably be sharing that with David Avelian. Oh, Quinn Tupaya, 
Might need some Kane's Dev Velvet to help out with those knees too. Crikey, that was disturbing. Anyway, while you're in the show notes, make sure you also check out uh, Drink Element and everything else that gives you a, a bit of a discount code there that we've been able to bring you through doing 252 episodes um, of the Stag Raw. If you're new or you're a long-time listener, be sure to give us a review or a rating on whatever platform you're on. That helps it to get out to more ears, allow more people to listen, and hopefully mean that we can get further uh, great discounts for you, the listeners, um, as part of being a member of the uh, Stag Raw crew. Make sure you're following us on socials, um, Instagram, Rhino Connor NZ. Um, we're on TikTok. Uh, <laughs> it's on YouTube. Um, yeah, check it out. And without further ado, here we go with episode 256. Beautiful. I think we're in, we're in action. Cool. Yes, sir. Asana, I haven't seen you in a very long time. It's been uh, this is my ninth year out of university, and I've and I've, and I've pulled out the uh, 2013 <laughs> New Zealand Optometry Society uh, hoodie, which was which was looks like ribs, but it's actually a bunch of glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that. I, remember that. <laughs> I think that was actually um, oh god, Siobhan's design actually back back in the day, and yeah, still. Yeah. I still rock it every now and again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've worked with Siobhan these days actually closely on a, on a project. So, yeah, um, we see each other almost every week. Yeah, it, it, he's, he's trying to develop patient management software. Is that correct? Um, and a few other bits and pieces. Yeah, I'm working with them on a few things. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, so you got me through possibly optometry's uh, make or break paper. For me, it was one six one. I think it's now two six one. Yeah. <laughs> um, the fund the fundamentals of of how a bloody lens works. How yes. did, how did you get wrapped into you and Jason? I think came yeah. from engineering. Mm-hmm. Got into lecturing us poor, medically orientated um, optometry students. How did you get wrapped into trying to teach the theories of how a, a piece of light is a wave in a particle and goes through multiple layers of different <laughs> mediums? Um, well. It's it's a bit more complicated than that, I guess. But um, but it's not like it's not a career that you see day one for yourself. But um, um, but you know my my backstory is you know I've always been involved in optometry, uh, vision science, blindness, and all that. That's been my 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 passion um, throughout life. Um, so probably some of your listeners already know if they know me they already know my backstory but just for people who don't know my backstory uh, uh, my father was blind when he was only four years old and and he went blind because of uh, congenital glaucoma a disease that is completely preventable but because it was undiagnosed um, it wasn't treated and, and I grew up with a blind father so, you know, when I started doing my, my own university degree, uh, my idea was, how can I prevent blindness? This is me when I was 18, naive. And, and, and you know, back in the day, uh, 
you know, I was thinking, if I become a clinician, if I become an optometrist or ophthalmologist, um, with all due respect to clinicians, I will be limited by the number of my uh, by the number of hours in my day. So again, naively, I was thinking, how can I get into technology sort of things? Because technology is sort of scalable, right? And that was me getting into university. I got into bioengineering day one because somebody told me that bioengineering um, is the science of helping uh, people with disability. Um, and, and I just got started from day one, I worked on vision and blindness um, and how can that be detected, prevented, even repaired. So when I got to my sort of doing my master's degree, I was at Sydney, University of New South Wales, and I got involved with a, a project that is still ongoing today, uh, which is about prosthetic retina. So the whole idea was that you install a camera inside of uh, the person's um, head, and it's wired in, connected to a prosthetic retina that then converts those sort of video signals into electrical signals and send it via, via the optic nerve head. And that project's still going and being successful. So, you know, that got me to my PhD, which was again on sort of engineering, sort of optometry, technology, sort of optometry. And when I finished my PhD, by the end of my PhD, I was really good at uh, anything that was technology related in optometry. You know, I could literally pull apart an OCT and put it back together. I know everything wow. about the optics of the thing. Um, and, and I knew everything about the software sort of thing. Like I could, I, I actually wrote the code for, um, OCT image diagnoses and that sort of thing. You know, uh, a lot of optoms, you may not know that, but a lot of optoms in our school came to me to write the code for their PhDs and their master's degrees because they were from a clinical background or had the sort of engineering background. So long way of saying that when it came to teaching you guys, um, I was, probably the only person who could walk into an optom clinic and know everything that there is to know about the machine that you guys know how to use and how to interpret. So, you know, and then obviously glasses, contact lenses, all of those are just extension of all the other optic bits that, you know, that's, that's, that are involved. So, you know, that's my story and how I ended up in uh, teaching you guys about optics. <laughs> and we're forever grateful, mate, because that was fun. <laughs> uh, and then, but my girlfriend's just doing dispensing optician's course and there was foundations of optics the other day and i just had i was triggered i was like oh that was evil and <laughs> and, and um it was myself and two other optometrists the other uh, the other week while she was at the course and we said it was open book but that just made it harder <laughs> yeah yeah that's true yeah because yeah, then you guys could have asked us anything and you, anything then you had to know where to find it, where anything was. And it was Correct. Correct. <laughs> in an open book exam, I'm not testing your memory. I'm testing your logic. <laughs> and, and that's even harder. But, but yeah, you know, since, since you left, I've been more and more involved in technology side of optometry and teaching it. So I think as of today, you probably know this, but I think the optometry, the course is changing into three-year of engineering and two-year of clinical optometry. Awesome. So, so the first three years is mainly engineering and vision science, and then you could choose to graduate uh, with a postgraduate degree in optometry. So you're not an optometrist, but you know you know a lot about vision science and that sort of thing. Or you could choose to carry on 
and do clinical optometry and become an optometrist. Um, so I think that's a good sort of way of doing it because a lot of other universities are also doing the same thing. That sounds amazing because when I didn't get in, and it was partly that my older brother was doing chemical process engineering, mm. that was one of the things that I did cross my mind mm. to, to go and do was, well, do I go be an engineer? And then, mm. but, then, but then I didn't have a, have a passion of where I wanted to do this. I did go down the anatomy science route and came mm. back to optometry. But yeah, the, the fascination of technology and, mm. and you know, while, whilst we were going through it, I think around 2011, 12 and 13, when those OCTs started to mm. come into the university. And I think, I think there was about three or four went through while I was there. Mm. And I was like, this thing is amazing. And now mm. seeing it go into OCTA, you know, having to help tell people that, oh, you're going to go to the hospital and they're going to inject this thing into you that may give you anaphylaxis to now being like, oh, they're going to take a photo using that machine yeah. that we've got through there and it's basically going yeah. to tell them the same thing. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's that's true. And and now you're seeing, you know, um, artificial intelligence brought in, right? Yeah. Because yeah. suddenly we realize that, you know, ophthalmology and optometry are probably one of the most imaging-heavy um, medical fields that I've seen, right? Um, apart from radiology, I think optometry and ophthalmology capture the most number of imaging modalities from a patient, right? And optometry is probably the only place that you have seven, eight, ten imaging modalities that is not necessarily in a clinic that's like, like a storefront. Mm. Um, and, and, and the problem with that is that you end up with too much information. Mm -hmm. right and and you know since uh, in the past three years i've been very much involved in optometry in the united states so i've learned a few things about how optometry is being run in other countries and and in india those are the two places that we are at as a company and and what i've learned is that introduction of in these sort of technology yes it's amazing but it creates a huge burden down the funnel so so now you end up with a huge number of people being referred mm. uh, because now you see something and obviously you don't want to miss anything so you refer on and and now the problem is in like places like india there's just not capacity mm. for seeing everybody in places like um united states the insurance uh payouts are blowing out um and that's why they're cutting uh reimbursement rates in the united states because there's just too many so now people are saying, great, we have all of these imaging technology, but now we need a gold standard sort of software to tell us if there's something wrong or not, at least in like the majority of the time. So, you know, it's, it's just evolving um, as we speak. It's, 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 it's an amazing field, you know. On a, on a very rudimentary level, what are we doing about data? I know there's plenty of practices mm -hmm. out here still on hardware servers. Like, is there much going on with cloud-based medical security and that sort of stuff yeah so so i think um big companies like aws google microsoft um and few others they have figured it out mm -hmm. uh, by that i mean the cloud-based security on these systems are much better than you and i internet banking security awesome and 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 the data is absolutely secured in every geographical region there are fail safes, there are backups, because for them it's a matter of doing business, right? So if there is a leak, if there's a hack, if there is loss of data, it's good for it's sorry, it's for it's bad for business. Mm. 
they're gonna do everything they can to make sure that it's safe and secure. And 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 I um and I I've seen the security sort of the systems that they have put up again all of these major uh, sort of companies out there and I can assure you that they are much more secure than your bank absolutely much more secure than your bank just no question asked um so but um medical data has always been a bit of a touchy um and sensitive sort of field um so people still don't trust and in a lot of places don't trust cloud Mm -hmm. uh, for storing medical data, which to me doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. And, you know, um, the, the, to me, the first point is if, the, if your medical data is not on the cloud in, a, in some shape or form, um, either you're restricting access to it, so you go to another clinic and they have no record of you, mm -hmm. um, or you know if it's on a physical server that's actually less secure than the cloud if it's on a physical server inside a building that's actually less secure and, and at the end of the day a clinician can only provide the best care for the patient if they know everything they can about you if any bit of information is missing for some sort of limitation lack of data loss of data you're not going to receive the best care possible it's just how it is yeah. Um, so that's where my brain goes to with Toku Oz. Mm -hmm. Like, um, having run or been a part of two now diabetic photo screenings, um, the, the first question in hurdle is trying to establish risk ratio. And of course, that comes mm -hmm. from their HbA1c, which is their private information and us as an allied health practitioner, mm -hmm. we're not, not privy to. And then it's kind of like go and take the photo, look at the photo, hope what they've told you is correct, and then yep. give them a re recall period. Whereas, you know, there's there's the health data from the blood test, but then how cool would it be that, you know, if Tukuwise is able to offset the um, cost burden to ty um, mm -hmm. to diabetics, that then there becomes funding for everyone to have a de Dexcom or, or a freestyle library that then integrates into Tokuwise when they arrive. And like you say, you've got OCTA built in as well. You've got awesome um, mm -hmm. photography built in. And then it's like, boom, five years come back. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, and you know, you, what you're describing is the vision of a, an individualized prognostic healthcare system that the system knows everything about you and it's not just because of your interaction with the clinic or hospital, but because wearable devices that you have at home mm. um, and they are talking to the clinician and you don't have to go in. I mean, COVID showed uh, all of us that there is no reason in the majority of time that you, you go to a, see a you know, practitioner. All you need are these sort of wearables at home to record your data and sort of prognostic AI that have seen everything about you and then can then predict where is that optimal point of time for you to come in, see a clinician, um, probably seek intervention if need be. And everybody will benefit. The patients will benefit. Healthcare system will benefit. Insurance will benefit. Mm -hmm. um, there is some way to go from technology point of view, sort of legal, ethical point of view. But I think we are getting there. I mean, there are countries that are doing this better than others. 
Um, I usually use Singapore as an example. Mm -hmm. I believe Singapore is definitely uh, uh, at the forefront of this sort of technology because they have implemented AI in private and public clinics. They talk to each other. They actually have a national system um, to record who is diabetic, who is hypertensive. So they know these people, like they can reach them. In New Zealand, you're supposed to have that system, but we actually don't. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have a, a record of our people with diabetes. It's, it's just a very incomplete, haphazard sort of list that every DHP has. Um, Australia is actually worse. Um, <laughs> the United States is by far the worst, by the way. Um, so, so, but, you know, I think, especially in, in, in Asia, where these countries are adopting these new technologies, and, 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 and I can see firsthand, even in India, the technology is so prevalent that the system knows a lot about you, a lot more than here we have in New Zealand. Like in India, we are working with Aravind, which is probably, it is the largest eye hospital in the world. They see a close to a million patients per year. Imagine what sort of capacity that one, they, they perform 500,000 cataract surgeries per year. I mean, just imagine that. Yeah. This, is, this is one hospital chain. It's like a sort of a chain of hospitals. So, so we are working with them, and they know everything there is to know about the patients, right? They know when to bring them in because it's all about efficiency. Mm -hmm. They know when to bring them in. They know what to do with them. And if the patient can be treated on the spot, they don't even want the patient to take an extra like, train or taxi to go to somewhere else. Let's just treat it there if we can save costs right save costs to the bare minimum so again i think a lot of the world is catching up here in new zealand in other western countries um we at least we are hearing the right things the right noises from the right people i mean ransco just a few days ago published yeah. an article the opinion piece about that ai must be part of the average screen it just cannot be ignored anymore it's just there's so much demand um so i think right people are saying the right things it's just putting into action will take time and effort and and you know at toku we are trying to do that we are trying to be part of the solution um every single day i'm meeting with someone from the ministry of health here or in australia or in some part of the world who say okay what can we do to bring in this system that is not just diagnostic but it can also be prognostic. Mm. So it doesn't just tell you you have a disease. It can tell you when should you come in for your next visit, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So, so, you know, good things are happening, but it takes time. It certainly takes time. What's the um, demographics like in Singapore? Like we, we constantly hearing about Japan is uh, going bankrupt with their super, like uh, healthcare needs, mm -hmm. and a lack of working population. What's Singapore like? Reasonably young? Um, Singapore is younger for sure, um, and and Singapore is a bit different. For example, Singapore doesn't have a what do you call it like a um, what do you call it retirement fund. Mm -hmm. There is no public insurance. Everybody pays uh, in some shape or form, um, and, but the but the healthcare system is incentivized to um, to do predictive healthcare. 
because the cost of treatment is much more, right? So everybody's trying to delay any event, any medical event, right? So if you're incentivized like that, you do everything you can to predict the next event, to improve patient outcome, to improve general health. So to me, Singapore and to some extent the UK, because of NHS system and how it's being set up, those are the countries that are really ahead of everybody else. That's that's how I feel. Yeah, NHS is wonderful with data. Like when you look at population trends of you know mm-hmm. five year brackets and side effect trends and things like that, it's pretty incredible um, what you can get out of of data. And um, I've had Sarah Hancock on here, who who's done a PhD through mm-hmm. um, AUT recently around dental health, and, and one of her roles between. Um, university and, and doing that phd was analyzing data for the nhs at the university of birmingham and i was like yeah what a, what a cool thing that they're putting you know the uh technical research skills of people towards mm-hmm. population information that's just there to be to be looked over yeah and and nhs is unique um well singapore is the same but not as big but it, you know um it's unique that they know everything about you. And I truly mean everything. Again, New Zealand was supposed to have a similar system, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. And I think it was our fault when we break when we broke down the system into 20 DHBs that are not communicating with each other. Um, so NHS is unique because they know every single interaction that you had with the healthcare system, which is amazing. And Singapore is the same, smaller scale. Um, Australia is, again, somewhat similar, but fragmented in parts united states is interesting because united states is the most fragmented market that i have seen and it's just unbelievable how backwards such a modern country and healthcare system is that nobody talks to anybody else so Mm. so i'll give you an example to find the only place that you can find the data set similar to nhs in the United States is the U.S. Army. Mm. That's the only place that keep records of every health interaction their staff and soldiers has because yeah. of obvious reasons. There is no other system like that in, in, in the United States. So so, so it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I've had the privilege of talking to Michael Lewis who looked at omega-3s and intraminic brain injury. Mm. And then he looked at um, CBD, intraminic brain injury and also PTSD. And again, mm-hmm. He was lucky enough that he was the lieutenant medical officer um, in the army and worked in Washington and, as, as you said, looked through that data. It's funny you brought up the um, Singapore model and sort of delay and offsetting the need for treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the cool sort of technology uh, pra- uh, practitioner insurance sort of links that I've followed is Verite Health out of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and we uh, the patient has the continuous glucose meter measuring their ketones and, and blood glucose, and that triggers a, an alert to a health coach to address their system. And then when it comes to the insurance end of it or the um, employer funding staff insurance, mm-hmm. they don't pay until the person gets their HbA1c below mm-hmm. 48. So again, it's that incentive structure to have a positive outcome and then mitigate the cost to the insur- insurer or employer for higher surgeries such as, you know, retinal detachment surgery, avastin injection, limb amputation, um, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Heart, heart replacement and all that sort of stuff. So Yeah. So just during the pandemic, I think there was a move in the United States to implement sort of what they call value-based providers. 
Mm-hmm. So you probably know this, but value-based providers are, they sit between the insurance company and the patient. And their job is to essentially postpone and delay the events by providing sort of wraparound, what they call wraparound services, nutrition, supplementation, exercise, and that sort of thing. You know, the two most famous ones are Livongo and, and Babylon Health. And for example, Babylon Health, what they do, they go to the insurance company and they pay Sorry, they, they take on the risk from, of that patient having an event and they get paid like $10,000 per person. And the idea is that if you push out the event for your overall population by, say, two or three years, um, you've saved a lot of money and the few that will have an event, you know, the, the $10,000 fees that you collected all, on all of your the population will cover that. Um, after pandemic, the, some of these companies are experiencing some trouble. One experience that I had, which is interesting, I was at American Diabetic Association conference in 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 um, uh, where was it? Uh, San Luis, or I can't remember right now. But it was like six months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Orleans, sorry, it was in New Orleans, and I was there in, in six months ago now. And there were a lot of these home their devices for glucose monitoring blood pressure monitoring um um a lot of other things the problem still was that there are 200 of these companies <laughs> and they are selling to 200 different insurance companies mm. right and it's just there is not a collection of data right if you ch- if you if you in in the united states if you change your employer if you change your insurance company there is no record there's no data it's just and, and, and at Toku, one thing that we believe is that the data must be shared mm-hmm. in a legal, ethical way, obviously. But um, for me, I believe, and, and this is a bit controversial, but I believe it's unethical not to share data because sharing data will ultimately benefit the society and the patient themselves. Again, there's a right way of doing it and there's a wrong way of doing it. But if it's done correctly, I think it's it's a necessity of our modern healthcare system. I guess one of the worries people have, and, and that's what uh, you're sort of hearing about genetic testing, is that if you, you flag up a um, predisposition to something, that your insurance premium would go up. And, and I guess that's more important in U.S. sort of uh, private healthcare yeah. as, opposed, as opposed to an NHS or, or a New Zealand equivalent health system. But... How do we? Um, how do you sort of think about the data belonging to the patient and for the practitioner to access it, and then in the case of the the insurer assessing people's risk and how much they want to put a premium on it to offset their risk? <laughs> yeah, and 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 that worry is real. I can mm. I can see that, and that's where you need a clear distinction between a healthcare provider and a payer, mm-hmm. and there should be a firewall between the two. When people say um, the medical data belongs to the patient, to me, that's a bit of an um, ambiguity uh, sort of situation because what are you going to do with that medical information? A patient doesn't have the expertise or knowledge to, to use that information. And that information, you don't carry it with you. Mm-hmm. It's locked up somewhere, right? And yes, it belongs to you. But then if you go to another provider and you do not carry that information with you, you're not going to receive the best care. Mm. 
obviously, because they know less about you that uh, ultimately, uh, optimally they should have. So I believe the medical information about a person belongs to the people who created that or they share that, you know, again, medical information, you wouldn't have access, uh, you wouldn't have had access to it if somebody didn't image you, mm. if somebody didn't build that hospital, if somebody didn't do that sort of process for you, right? So a lot of people contributed to the fact that you have access to that data. So now for me, one aspect is the ethical part for me is to share my data back mm -hmm. because a lot of those people who benefit from my data, you know, because if, I, if all of us are contributing to a pool of data, all of us will be better off. So if, if everybody's just holding to the data, it's just, this is mine and I'm not going to share it. All of those people who helped me getting that data are going to be worse off. So that's number one. Number two, me as a patient, I want to receive the best care. So it's in my interest that the healthcare providers, being my clinician here or somebody else in, in another state or another company, country, has access to my data. But that should be protected. That should be the limit of data sharing. So the payers shouldn't see that information. My employers shouldn't see that information because they were not part of obtaining that data, mm -hmm. right? So to me, there's a clear distinction between a provider and a payer, and they should be, but all providers should have access to all information about me because again, that's in the interest of me, that's in the interest of the society. Mm. Yeah, I've had the observation lately with the likes of Mindichi and I think it's called like My Health First or something like that, which is the apps, apps that the general practices, practices are using now to share your results and, and make appointments and, and contact and all that sort of jazz. So as I said before, as allied health uh, practitioners, we don't have access to the health record and often because of the low level of health literacy, we ask someone their HPA won't see and they don't know it. But many will have, uh, mm -hmm. in the case of Tokoro, a lot of the time, my Ditchy. And so if there's sort of five or ten minutes to, to spare, we go, all right, I'll bring it up and let's use this as a little education moment. Like mm -hmm. results and reports, HPA1C, there you go. See how it's in red and see how it says there 48, that means top two diabetic. Or see it's in orange, you know, you're 40 to 48, that's, you know, you're doing okay, your risk is low. Um, we can sort of have that, have that moment. But the, the, the gap in, in this is, is that literacy mm -hmm. of what the data means. Yes. You know, and that's that's sort of what I'd love to hear the perspective of yourself and talk wise. Like, if the AI is um, diagnosing and, what do you say, prognosing, yeah. how then do, is that communicated still to the patient of doing a good job? Here's areas that we can work on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so that's also very important when it comes to AI. I think the AI, um, when it's being trained, i.e., you're creating an AI, right? Um, you want to make sure that you have captured data from your entire population. Mm -hmm. If for whatever reason a segment of community is not captured, well, guess what? Your AI is not going to perform well on that segment. I mean. Three, four, five years ago, there was this whole argument that the AIs are working great for Caucasians, but not for Hispanics and African Americans, or maybe in this country for Maori and Pacifica, because they were not sharing the data, um, or the data was not available. You know, this, the 
Um, a lot of early generations of AI were created using private hospitals that only had access to, you know, um, I guess more affluent part of the society. And obviously when they were implemented in hospitals that were sort of in the lower socioeconomic places, they didn't work. So, so first of all, when you're creating an AI, you have to make sure that it's representative of the entire community. Otherwise, by definition, it's going to have biases, it's not going to work. So that's number one. So you, it, at Toku, we are going to um, a lot of trouble and, and making sure that we are getting information uh, that is otherwise difficult to obtain. I'll give you an example. Um, we are trying to essentially roll out our diabetic screening program in Australia. Up until now, we haven't had access to data from the Aborigines community. And now we are partnering with Aborigines clinics, particularly just to get that data, right? So we are going um, above and beyond to make sure that our AI is representative of everybody included. So that's number one. That's when you're creating an AI. When you are using an AI, um, you have to make sure that the level of information is fit for the user, right? So again, the definition of the user is a bit loose because you have the patient, you have the technician, you have the clinician, and then you have the specialist. And each of those do not have to see the same level of information, right? Because there is not enough literacy. If I, if I bombard the patient with a whole lot of medical jargon because we can and the AI can, that's not going to do any good. If anything, that's going to do harm. So for example, in, in, in Toku, when we are reporting disease, we have several reports tailored to different people for the level of knowledge. A patient will benefit from telling them that they need to go and see an ophthalmologist, nothing more. Hmm. A specialist should know the exact grading of a disease and probably a prognosis of it, right? And then they can have that human-to-human -human conversation with the patient. So there's a lot of nuance when it comes to how you create an AI and how you convey the message of the AI to the patient. That's why you see a lot of research papers on AI. But realistically, how many of them have actually been included in, in health? Very little com com compared to all the great AIs that have been published scientifically. That's exactly because of all these little sort of nuisance that you see and people often ignore. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting listening to Sarah Halberg talk before she died. Um, she was mentioning about levels of A1C with uh, East Asians, how they tended to have a higher level of disease with lower HbA1Cs. Mm -hmm. And they're even sort of finding that a little bit with Indian cultures as well. And that's where I think there's a lot of beauty in looking at the vasculature of the retina because yeah. you're, you're looking at the actual disease. Mm -hmm. and it's like it's irrelevant of the HbA1C. The HbA1C starts to you know, associate the level of risk. And like you say, that's based upon what? Um, I don't, can't remember what the CCT comes from or CTT, whatever it is. I think it might have been NHS again. But, um, yeah, that, that the feedback and the knowledge of the disease is just going to escalate because it's like, actually, we find microvascular events with lower HbA1Cs mm -hmm. in, this, in this group of population and actually hey, our, our level of tolerance for controlling, yeah, and we've got to be careful with our medications and stuff, but our level of, of tolerance for controlling the disease um, actually does need to be at a lower level, and that's going to, as, as we said, push back and extend that time period mm -hmm. towards a um, 
a medical intervention or prognosis. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. I get this question almost every week that does ethnicity matter <laughs> in diagnosing a disease? And my, my answer is not necessarily in diagnosing a disease, but certainly in prognosing a disease. Mm. So a diabetic, a, a retinopathy retina of an Indian person almost looks exactly like a, you know, a Caucasian, mm. right? A matter of disease presentation. But as you said, statistically, you know which one's going to go bad faster, right? Mm. It, there, are, there are certainly person-by-person person differences as well. And again, that's where AI goes beyond just ethnicity. You can drill it down to that person, ethnicity being part of it. Um, but you're right, you know, um, ethnicity, where you live, your postcode matters, you know. And, and AI doesn't know postcode, but AI knows a lot about what has happened to you, which is captured in the retina, and what's going to happen to that retina, which means what's going to happen to you. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. So on, on the broader scale, when it comes to AI, like I listen to Lex Friedman, do you know who he is? Yes. Yeah. Have you met, have you met him? I've never met him, no. <laughs> I was going to say, if you ever meet Lex, say hi from Rhino Corner in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what's the conversation like around the School of Vision Science, the University of Auckland, New Zealand? Like, what, what, what does it look like? <laughs> um, in one aspect, so in which aspect, sorry? Like, you brought up the eth ethical side right, right, right. Yeah, well, like, that, that's probably where you get the philosophy, you know, mm. PhD philosophy. Come, right, come right. Like, what... What, are we are we scared? Are we excited? Or are we debating? Yeah, I think we are. We are certainly not uh, in the what I call the progressive parts of the world, right? In in uh, and I see that in 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 Asia, especially in Asia, um, um, the ethics are being looked at from the patient's benefit point of view, mm -hmm. i.e., if it benefits the patient to share data, for example, we should, right? Um, here in New Zealand, in the Western community, I have to say, generally speaking, in the Western community, um, the data and ethics has been looked at more about uh, on the sort of a sort of protection of the system, right? So what's the best way of protecting your organization from a a hack from a leak of data or that sort of thing by restricting data sharing right so uh, looking at it from a liability point of view um makes people conservative in any matter of life in mm -hmm. any matter of life right so if you're conservative about um your approach to data you're going to restrict it as much as you can right that's true for New Zealand in general. That's true for University of Auckland. That's, and, you know, it extends to school, obviously. They're all part of the same system. And the sort of strategy starts at the top. I, I can see why that's been done. But at the same time, I see the damage that it can do. You know, if you're sharing, if you're restricting data sharing so much, um, then in two, three, five years' time, people in Singapore or Hong Kong or Japan or even places like Philippines will receive a much better care than people here in New Zealand. Because over there, the same um, technology, the same medical technology is targeted better 
to to deal with that particular patient than here because here you don't have the data give you a, a very easy example here if you change your dhp simple as that if you went from Christchurch to fungaray there are no records sharing mm. the system has no record of you and it's just mind-boggling right it's just mind-boggling that that happens today right um in the in, in sort of the university level we are gathering a lot of data in from hundreds of projects every year and i just don't see why we can't share that data mm. among researchers obviously a lot of it will, should be de-identified there should be guardrails around it again there's a right way of doing it and there are lots of wrong ways of doing it but university of Auckland can create one of the most comprehensive health data sets, at least from Auckland. Mm. We have the data, but because this researcher is not allowed to share data with the other researchers sitting in the next room, <laughs> all of us are worse off. <laughs> yeah. So, so I just, I just, I think soon in the next few years, we will see that healthcare systems in, again, especially Asian countries will be much better advanced, much more advanced and much better at taking care of the people than here in, in Western countries and generally meaning in Western countries. I'm going to have to share this to my mum because she was um, worked in reportable events for Southland Hospital and then of course they became Southern DHB and so then they had to integrate Otago and Southland in together and whilst they're doing that they're building a new software and old Canterbury went oh yeah we would love to do that too you know we'd love to be able to track reportable events mm -hmm. versus complaints and marry them up and you know it's a bit like zero when you have a have an, have an invoice and then it gets yeah. paid and then you go oh look at that boom balanced yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it's like we the, the the doctor said oh dear we stuffed that up and then the patient said oh they stuffed that up and then you go bang oh yeah, there they go there they go together mm -hmm. and then it's across the country you have well this keeps happening in this in this theater or and at this time of day or you know when we use this piece of um, medical equipment but it doesn't happen when we use the other medical equipment maybe we should use the other piece of medical equipment yeah. and then the whole yeah. country uses that other piece of medical equipment and we exactly. don't have those those events anymore <laughs> and, and 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 we have been working on it here in new zealand at, uh, at toku you know we have proposed this to the ministry this is at the beginning of COVID, so then everything sort of stopped. But our proposal has been to have a truly centralized diabetic screening system, right? Why people should miss out their screening opportunity um, because they moved or because they forgot or because they were just busy, you know? Our current system, you probably know this because you've been part of it. Currently, our system will try to reach a patient twice. And if you cannot reach them, then gone. They're they're out. There is no record, you know. Mate, I, I've uh, we 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 were in Tokoroa. We had um, our receptionists working through the DHB. Mm. Where we have um, down in Topo, we are going through a um, primary health unit or whatever it's PHU, mm -hmm. and they send us a uh, Excel spreadsheet, which I don't think we're allowed to edit. And then that gets printed off and we have a staff member crossing off the person. I think they text them yes. and they call them and then they send them a letter. And you're right, then they get reported back to the PHU that uh, we can't get hold of them. And I'm sitting there going, can we like at least like mail merge this or 
Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, we can't, we can't eat it at the, the Ixtel's Bridge. I'm like, this is like 20th century stuff, right? This <laughs> is 20th century stuff. It's just, um, yeah. So it's, it's mind blowing. I mean, NHS has figured it out. Singapore has certainly figured it out. Why can't we figure it out? Right. Why can't we have a bunch of optometrists and ophthalmologists sitting somewhere centrally and a whole lot of technicians, pharmacists, GPs, just image people, just image people day in, day out. AI will do bulk of the heavy lifting. Core group of, of clinicians in a central location, audit the whole thing, and then capture that information that this person in Tokorua had an event, had a screening event. So now if that person moved to Christchurch, that's okay. We have the record. Mm. So it's just simple, isn't it? It's straightforward, isn't it? How much quality does the camera need to be? Because we were um, in Tokoro, we we're using a Topcom Maestro, mm -hmm. and now we're using an Idon. Yeah. Um, obviously, with the Idon, for the most part, we can get uh, a wide field image without the yeah. need for dilation, and it's really sensitive to that inner limiting membrane. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, so I love using the Idon. Yeah. But what does that matter to the the what have you called the Toku software? Yeah. Athea, that's one. What yeah. does it matter to them? Could 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 it could it get the old um, iPhone attachment uh, mm -hmm. uh, retinal image going on? So, so that's a very good question. That's that's a very good question. So AI can be trained on any camera, right? Yeah. As long as you provide enough information from that camera, AI can deal with that camera. So in in Thea, we have two modes. We have the flash photography mode, which is your Topcon and Canon and those bits. And then we have a white LED mode, which is your Adon and DRS Plus and those technologies. Um, we have a version of Thea that is running in India, which is different. In India, there is a different sort of technology because of sort of poorer quality optics, the images are not great. So we had to adopt AI for India. So our Indian AI is actually different. Same name, but the core is different. Mobile attachments, yes, possible, as long as it is good image quality. And I think the problem with mobile attachments are just the quality of the technician or the person who's captured the image. There's a lot of hand-eye coordination that should happen and should be okay for a good quality image. Mm. Um, we actually are working with a group out of University of San Francisco, UC San Francisco, and they have that mobile attachment. It's an sort of it's designed for Apple uh, mobiles, um, iPhones, and 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 it works. You know, AI works. But again, the the user who's capturing those images should be trained enough so they can deal with that all sort of you know movements of the eye and the head and that sort of thing. And and are you training it to read OCTA or is that sort of? So we're certainly, we're certainly using, uh, looking at OCT. Um, so that's, that's for sure. OCTA will be a bit later on. The reason for that is um, a lot of optometrists have OCT, but almost none of them will have OCTA. Mm. Um, and, and again, we are, as a company, we are focused on the forefront, the, the screening part, when, when, when there's a sort of direct touch point to the, to the patient. By the time you've made it to a clinic that has OCTA, Somebody has identified some sort of disease. So, yeah. so, so OCTA is a bit further down the track for us, for sure. Yeah. And yeah, 
it's kind of like if, if you need an STA, you, you've probably probably too late. Does that mean you need the treatment? <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's funny because you know these things are obvious, but you only see them when you when you get down doing it. So, for example, you know we are working on this product called Oracle, and we announced it um, a few months ago now that looks at cardiovascular risk using retinal images, right? And and I've been talking to cardiologists, uh, especially in the United States, and they love the idea in that by the time you make it to the cardiologist, you already are experiencing chest pain. Mm -hmm. That's why you're in that clinic. And that's too late. If you could tell someone has a risk of cardiovascular event without any symptoms, that's where you want to capture the patient. Mm. So, so a lot of the time, specialities like ophthalmology, cardiology, these are ambulances at the bottom of a cliff. Mm. It just doesn't work. Yeah, it's funny you, you say that again. This goes back to the whole data sharing and the power of an AI. Like when we see nipping or we see silver wiring, so that's cholesterol, mm. cholesterol along along the vessels in the retina, mm. and we kind of write a letter to mm. the GP and say, "Hey." have you checked this person's cholesterol and blood pressure lately <laughs> mm -hmm. you know and you kind of and you kind of what's happened to that to that referral yeah and whereas if you had an ic um an ai with you know where are you up to 98 percent certainty yeah yes yeah. go hey this person's at risk of a heart attack or a stroke pretty soon <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so so there are a few points and number one not everybody is good enough to see that right not every optometrist out there will look at that image and say oh i see something right so there is a there's a variance in the sort of expertise and quality of any profession out there optometrist included right mm. so that's number one with ar you get rid of that your ar you get consistency everywhere so that's number one number two right now you're right in australia in new zealand in the united states Optometrists don't deal with the speciality unless there's ophthalmologists. They deal with the GPs. GPs, they don't, they are busy with other things, right? Mm. Whereas if optometry was directly connected to cardiology because you have the report, because the machine says this is it, and the cardiologists, they, they trust the technology. It's published, you know, it's backed by science, you know it works. And the optometrists will provide that report and say, look, there's a, the evidence, then that's the direct link between optometry and cardiology. That's why we are working on today. I want to make every optometry out there a screening node for all cardiovascular diseases. That's the ultimate goal. That's where we are going. Yes, we started from diabetic arthropathy, but now we are doing diabetes. We are doing cholesterol. We are doing everything cardiovascular, right? There is no reason why an optometrist cannot become the first point of screening for a cardiac clinic. Mm. Yeah, and I was just listening to something around Alzheimer's, and and again, yeah. they, they, there was a massive cross crossovers with what us what he was talking about with Alzheimer's, and he occasionally did bring up macular degeneration, and I'm like, hey, there we go again. You know, yeah. we've, we've got that window to the soul. Exactly. Um, this this is the power of of that information, and like you say. When you can lift lift the benchmark because you've yeah. got you know you've got um, peer reviewed data. <laughs> okay, here's the report, mate. Like exactly. 
So, so I think optometry is going to go through a major change in the next 10 years. I truly believe that. And I'm happy to, that I'm trying to be part of it. Um, so right now, there's also, you have to look at it from sort of financial incentives. Right now, optometrists are incentivized to sell glasses and contact lenses. That's true anywhere in the world. Mm. And I have worked with people in Vietnam, I've worked with people in India, anywhere in the world. If you're an optometrist, you're incentivized to sell glasses and contact lenses, right? And although you look at the eye for doing a health check, that is not the money-making part of the business. Um, if anything, in many places, that's the money loss of the business. Um, the loss so, leader. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you have to do it, right? But uh, in, in few countries, including the United States, it's changing. So now insurance companies in the United States are actually paying optometrists for those medical exams. So when you get paid for it, I mean, all the knowledge, all the good for the patient is great, but you still have to get paid for it. Right, to, mm. for it to become sustainable, right? You cannot rely on few optometrists that are just doing it because they love it. Everybody should be doing it, and if that's the case, everybody should get paid for it. That's just a reality. Um, so in the United States, there are, the insurance is changing, so optometrists can do more of a monitoring. And I think COVID actually played a role in that. You know, nowadays, people don't want to go to GPs. They don't want to go to hospitals. But you still go to the shopping mall or... So a high street optometrist, right? So mm -hmm. why not do the screening there and get paid for it so everybody wins? And, and, and again, I think in five to 10 years time, optometry will look nothing like what it is today. That's, I truly believe that. Mm. Yeah, you're uh, helping me write a, uh, a uh, proposal for the old Snow Vision um, mm -hmm. application to go have a visit to New York, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the mind is the mind is boggling yeah with with, with what's possible <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so what what sort of um phds are working in this space um Isan? um phd so so or, or candidates sorry <laughs> yeah yeah so so it's interesting i almost every month i get a actually more than once a month, like nowadays it's two, three times a month, I get a PhD application from an optometrist who wants to do AI. Uh, most of them are actually from your cohort, you know, before you or after you, people that have graduated as an optometrist, gone and do the business, and now they want to do technology. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you, know, you know, I could go into why that is, you know, the burnout, you know, just try to do something different and that sort of thing. Uh, and... The good thing about technology today is that optometrists can become AI engineers um, with, with limited sort of education because nowadays you don't necessarily need to code to create an AI. There's a lot of codeless um, or minimal code involved in AI these days. Doesn't mean that your AI is good, but it means that you can get started. Um, and so, so I think um, right now I have three PhD students, soon to be four. Um, two of them are pure AI engineers, but they only talk math and code. Um, <laughs> two of them are optometrists, and and they, they cannot code, but they do understand code, which is, to me, it's really interesting because, you know, you can create the best uh, AI technology out there, but as, a, as an engineer, you don't realize that it failed, right? <laughs> we, we, we say 
we say that AI fails silently. So it's not like the other code that it will give you the crash and blue screen. It will generate something. It's just that something might be useless. <laughs> so unless you have that clinical knowledge, you wouldn't know that what you got is just useless. And, and believe, believe me, I see some publications out there from sort of top universities and you're looking at it as like, you didn't get the point, did you? This AI with some fancy design has just generated rubbish. It's just because you didn't understand the clinical implication of it. Um, I've, maybe here's an example. I just saw a, uh, I actually just reviewed a paper for um, a top journal coming from one of the top universities in the world. And the whole um, idea was to generate synthetic OCT images, right? So if you can generate synthetic OCT images, you don't need to gather OCT data to create the next AI. You just create data and you create AI based on that. And the researchers have gone through a whole lot of um, trouble to create a very complicated AI architecture. And the results were OCT images that you look at them and you think that's real, you know? You wouldn't be able to tell the difference if that's a real OCT image or it's a sort of a manufactured one. Mm -hmm. The problem was I digged into the data that they used and it was from a completely anonymized data set. So you had no idea about the ethnicity, uh, age, disease state, nothing. You knew nothing about these people. You only had the images. So you don't know the image that you created is representative or not, or what is it representative of? It's just an image, right? And, 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 and I outright rejected that. So I, I, I sort of wrote back to the editors that this, this doesn't make sense. So you create an image. You cannot then train another AI based on that image because you don't know what this is based on. If you don't know the population that you've created that synthetic image on, how are you going to judge the outcome, right? So, so there's no con context to Correct. To <laughs> Correct. Correct. So you might have got all of your OCT images from an Asian population that are going through a sort of, I don't know, macular degeneration clinic. Yeah. Which is what's going to happen to your images, right? Um, so, 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 you know, you see a lot of poor research out there because the lack of clinicians who understand AI and can have input in that. So I love seeing clinicians getting more knowledge about AI, actually doing PhDs on AI. Almost all top universities out there are offering AI degrees, like PhDs, masters for clinicians, tailored to clinicians. So I think, you know, as, as a clinician, um, you and your, your, your colleagues should take advantage of these just to get educated on AI. Yeah. And so, so is it doing machine learning? Is that what it's doing? Machine learning is, is sort of a subspeciality of AI, yes. Yeah. And so when you were training Toku eyes, uh, sorry, what did you say it was called? Thea. Thea. When you're yeah. training Thea, you're, you're showing it lots of images and, and it's creating a database? Or, or how, is it, how is it doing it's, it? It's a bit more complicated than that. So the AI, the core technology has advanced and it's more complicated because 
our way of doing it is a whole lot of neural networks that are connected to statistical models, which is then followed by a whole lot of other neural networks. So there, there are good reasons why we did have, how we did it, but it's a bit more complicated than just throwing images at it. Mm. You have to know what these images are representing, and that's extremely important. So you need a neural network to make a decision, is that right? So it goes through a decision tree. Something like that. Something like that. So I'll give you an example. Images can come from many cameras. Yeah. Each camera has a bit of a different look and feel and image quality. The first job of an AI is to identify which camera did this image come from. Mm -hmm. And that decision changes everything beneath it. Right. Why? So people don't really understand that, that you cannot just create one AI for all the cameras out there. Yeah. You have to have an adaptive AI that the first part is, is this an Adon or is it a Topcon or is it a Canon? And then everything else changes according to that very first decision. Yeah. Wow. And, and at that level, are they coming to you asking to install it in the cameras, like go to market with it in them? Yeah. Yeah. So right now there are a few clinics across New Zealand that are using our AI, um, mm. diabetic screening. We are in 20 clinics in India, uh, soon to be in 20 clinics in Australia. Um, our US is a bit of a mystery. Uh, I'm not going to reveal it here, but soon you will hear about it. So, so yeah, yeah, it's being implemented in practice in several places. That is so cool. So, Isan, if people want to, like, this is clearly just touch the surface <laughs> if people want to start following this innovation from new zealand from university of auckland um follow you where do they sort of keep up with with um, what's happening you know optometrists or people that are just interested in technology like this podcast is lifeless ordinary and this is completely out of the ordinary so where do the people touch base man absolutely so um First thing, life is too precious to be ordinary. Just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, just don't be ordinary. That's just my advice. I, I think your listeners might be a bit younger than me. Do not be ordinary. Um, you only get to live once. If you want to find me, uh, LinkedIn is the best place. Yeah. So I don't know if you can provide the link to my... Yeah, uh, I sure can. Yeah. So LinkedIn is the best way of finding me. I don't have any other social media account. I'm not on Facebook or Instagram or anything else. I don't have that sort of time. Um, but LinkedIn, get in touch. We can have a chat. You you hear from us on LinkedIn as well. Nice, nice. And uh, Toku Wise, I'll put that put that link in there as well, which, um, yeah, mostly thanks to Siobhan. I, I sort of found, found you guys. I, the um, headwear that I worked with in Australia, I think, had mm -hmm. a little bit to do with, with the technology in, yep. in, term, in terms of um, having some of the um, uh the technology port but um yeah i'd sort of touch base with the ceo while i was there and i thought oh, that's really interesting um mm -hmm. and yeah come back to new zealand and, and saw you yes i was involved i was like oh this is so cool um so you just gave us a gym there before about not being ordinary ordinary what's something that you is on live your life by uh, that keeps you in flow keeps things going well do you have like a mantra or way you live your life you started off telling us about your, your dad and, and mm -hmm. how that drove basically your life um do you have something that keeps you in flow mate make a difference nice just make a bloody difference i mean i see people that just go through life without even trying to make a difference who knows if i'm going to be successful or not but at least i'm trying right 
try to make a difference. Uh, I started my life um, with, with a blind father, affected my entire way of thinking about life, and I'm trying to make a difference. Everybody should have something that drives them. Um, trying to make a difference doesn't have to be curing cancer, but it has to be something, you know? Um, and, and just again, for, for your audience, people talk about work-life balance. Mm. Um, my work-life balance is work, work, and more work. <laughs> that's the only way you make a difference, right? That's the only way you make a difference. Whatever that work is, again, doesn't have to be, um, you know, world-changing, earth-shattering, or anything like that. Whatever it is, make a difference. Love it, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Hopefully that uh, son of yours has gone to bed, but if not, I'm sure there's, a, there's lots of love to be had Absolutely. <laughs> in the frustration. And, um, yeah, what are we at? Nine o'clock. The All, Bla All Blacks will be about to kick off, so I don't know if I'll stay up for that. But <laughs> <laughs> After the recent results. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, we can always hope. We can always hope. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I must uh, get back up to the, the School of Vision Science and uh, Optometry again sure sometime thing. soon and um, yeah. touch base and see what the how it's changed it sounds amazing yeah absolutely we'll love to see you there lovely thanks mate we'll end it there all oh, good all right take care Ryan. cheers we stop <laughs> recording stop the recording and stop the recording.